0: Church will be together today in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So, as the kids are being dismissed, everybody else, you can turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, underneath the seat in front of you should be one. And in those blue Bibles, we are on page 130. We'll be looking at chapter 4. The chapter numbers are the large ones, and the smaller numbers are the verses. We'll be, believe it or not, looking at the whole chapter. Uh, As Christians, we understand the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. As we considered last week, the idea God is known by His Word and will make His Word known in His time, we believe that to be true about the entire Bible. In the Statement of Faith we teach in our membership class here at Churchill Mill, there's an article that speaks to what we believe about the Bible. Thought it might be helpful for us to look at it today, so it'll be on the screens. Says Article Two. It says, "We believe that God has graciously disclosed His existence and power in creation, and has supremely revealed Himself in the person of His Son, the Incarnate Word. God's also revealed Himself in His written Word, the verbally inspired 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. It is complete in its revelation." of his will for salvation sufficient for all God requires us to believe and do and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge in which it speaks the bible is to be believed as god's perfect instruction and in all that it teaches obeyed as god's perfect command and all that it requires and trusted as god's pledge in all that it promises friends that is an excellent confession of what the Bible itself teaches. For those who will listen, God's Word is infinitely profitable for equipping us to live godly lives, to be increasingly transformed into more and more Christ-likeness in how we live. It's advantageous as God uses His Spirit through the Word to bring about God-glorifying transformation in each one of our lives. And this is the usefulness of every passage in the entire Bible. Amen? Three of you are with me. But let's be honest. The the profitability, the usefulness of every biblical text is not equally seen at first glance. What I mean is there's times in which you read a particular passage and it's incredibly easy to see how the words are just leaping off the page as God speaks and we hear and we respond. And yet there are other texts where we are at first, at best confused, Our study in the book of 1 Samuel brings us to chapter 4 this morning. This is an interesting historical account in its own right. But I'm not sure its profitability lies plainly on the surface. This is one of those passages that requires a bit of mining in order to find the diamond in the rough, if you will. The story... You see, feels really far removed from our own experience, and therefore it's easy to assume it may not be applicable to us today. It's also incredibly somber. We like easy and happy. And this passage is neither. It's tough. It's heavy. It's serious. And yet, church, even this chapter is here for our good. I hope you'll labor with me in order that we might hear what God has to say. At the beginning of Samuel chapter 4, starting in the second half of the first verse, we will encounter a battle between the Israelites and the nation outside of themselves who was poised to be their greatest threat, the Philistines. Look with me there in verse 1. It says, now Israel went to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, to lose this battle was a massive surprise. This had not been the common experience of the people of Israel. They were used to winning. Think of it this way, the idol-worshipping Philistines defeated the, at least theoretically, one true God-worshipping Israelites. This ought not to be, and yet it was. The Israelites are those people who had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, who had crossed through the Red Sea on dry soil, who had seen God again and again and again miraculously provide for and sustain them in their wanderings in the wilderness. And then who found the very power of God on their side as they settled into Canaan, these people got their tails kicked by those Philistines. Now, let's see how they responded. Verse 3, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So picture this as... 4,000 soldiers lay dead in the field, and the elders counted the losses, they asked a really, really good, important question. Why has the Lord defeated us? That is what they should have asked. But instead of seriously, prayerfully, carefully contemplating an answer, they rushed their own conclusion. They didn't wait for God to speak. They raced ahead of him. They seemed far more concerned about losing again than about actually hearing from and honoring God. So, in place of repenting of their sin, seeking God's guidance, and dealing with the leadership failures of, his, of Eli and his family, The elders determined we have our own divine battle plan. Here it is, let's get the ark. The ark will fix it. Now You got to do a little bit of reading between the words in order to see what the narrator is pointing out to us. It seems that the Israeli leaders thought just As a rabbit's foot brings good luck to its owners, the ark will bring good luck to us. Far from depending upon God, it was a sinful way of attempting to force God's hand. It was presumption, not faith. It was a failure to address the sins of the people in general and the priest in particular, not quick wit and wisdom from the elders. Remember, this was a period of time marked by people doing what was right in their own eyes. And it seems that this is exactly what this is. It's an indicator of, yet again, how far God's people had strayed from his goodwill. How would God respond? Well, friends, the Bible's filled with instances in which people with poor motives found the mercy of God. I mean, there's stories all over the place that work themselves out that way. And incidentally, haven't you found that to be true? But in this case, how does God respond? Well, follow along with me looking at verse five as. Soon as the ark of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of their shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. Woe to us! Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Er, er, er. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now, from this paragraph, it appears like there's a legitimate possibility the elder's strategy is going to work. I mean, after all, fear came upon the Philistines for the reputation of the, quote, mighty gods. Apparently, the plagues in Egypt, which are recorded in the book of Exodus, if you've never read them, I'd encourage you to. But apparently, those plagues were so pervasively known that these Philistines in an entirely different place, many, many, many years later, felt the fear of the same coming upon them. The irony here, of course, is that the Israelites didn't fear the ark, but the Philistines did. incredible. So they readied themselves for war. The elders believed and the Israeli soldiers believed that because they took the ark, God would have to intervene. It takes a mere two verses to describe the outcome. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This horrific day is aptly summarized in those two verses. And we could break them down even further into just two words. Defeat and capture. The rabbit's foot strategy was ineffective. It didn't work. First, Israel was defeated. A stunning 30,000 people died, including Eli's two sons, who, as the narrator is careful to tell us, were the two with the ark. And worst of all, the ark was captured. If you're new to the Bible, all this talk about an ark is likely incredibly confusing. This isn't Noah's ark, it's not a boat, and it's not Raiders of the Lost Ark either. This is a different ark. Would you allow me a few minutes to try to explain? For it's impossible to understand the story without understanding what the ark was. The ark of the covenant was an incredibly special box Covered in gold. If you're unfamiliar with it, you can read later today Exodus chapter 25. It gives an incredibly intricate detail what this box looked like. But here's where it came from. After God had rescued the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, He gathered them together and He gave them instructions about how to live as His new people. And part of those instructions included plans for how to build this box and plans for where to put this box. This ornamental, incredibly significant and symbolic box was to be put inside the tabernacle and eventually inside the temple. And inside the tabernacle, it was to be put in the innermost room, a room in which... Only the high priest was supposed to go once a year. And this box, this extraordinary box, known as the Ark of the Covenant, had inside of it the tablet called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, if you're not familiar with those, are also in Exodus. Exodus is a book as good as any book or movie you will ever see or read especially if you do it in one sitting. I encourage you to give that the time. The Ten Commandments are the heart of the covenant promises that God made with His people and which they received and pledged to follow. These are the, the wedding vows, if you will, between husband, God, and wife, Israel. And inside this box were then carried around the terms that both parties had agreed to. Now, the whole thing was covered in gold and on top of the box was something called the mercy seat. It's probably readily evident what that means. The mercy seat was the very place where the mercy of God was seen and known and revealed and dispensed for people in need of it. And then above that mercy seat were these cherubim we read about in this story. Now I tell you all that to say this. This symbolic box, this ark, symbolized the very presence of God. It was normally kept inside the tabernacle behind a thick curtain to remind people of the holiness of God. But here, in 1 Samuel 4, the elders decide, let's go get it so that God will have to act. Let's go get it so we can force God's hand. But now, as a result, 30,000 bloody mangled men lay on the ground and the ark is gone. Now, I warned you, this doesn't feel profitable early on, but you've done great so far. Hang with me a little while longer. Here's the question we've got to ask that this story begs us to ask, and that is, in fact, about. Here's the question, what's the significance of the fact that the ark was captured? Why does it matter? What did that mean? Well, the answer to our question is stated in no uncertain terms by the rest of the chapter. Look with me at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. That's not because he ran really far and he got exhausted and dirty. This is a culturally specific way of saying he was in mourning. In this time period, if something wretched happened, and you are a follower of God, then you would tear your clothes and put dirt on your head. Maybe preschoolers know what they're doing. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son?" he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. When when Eli got word that the ark was gone, for him, everything came undone. And what a pitiful, shameful death. Did you notice the story says in verse 18 that he was heavy? It is not often in the Bible that the Bible talks about how much someone weighed. But here it does. Why? Well, it's very likely that Eli had literally become obese, eating the fat and meat from the sacrifices his sons had taken unlawful. Friends, Eli reaped what he sowed, quite literally. This dethroning of Eli was the just judgment of God. His his laziness, his failure to address his son's sins, his straying from what God had clearly revealed, these are enormous leadership failures. And yet, it's also clear that Eli no doubt loved God. It's the fact of the ark being taken that caused him such grief, not even the fact that his sons were killed. Eli had experienced something of spiritual maturity, and yet he did not finish well. Unfortunately, that's not all that uncommon. May that serve as a warning to a young church. Now, I'm sorry to tell you, but the next paragraph is no rosier. The remaining verses talk about Eli's daughter-in-law who was pregnant at the time. And what happened to her when she got news that the ark was gone? Verse 19 says, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, Don't be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Friends, those all of us know, those who are blessed with the opportunity to be parents know the birth of a child is one of the most enormously significant and joyous days anyone ever experiences in this life. And yet this day for this mother, all she could think was Ichabod. That's it. Ichabod means inglorious or no glory. And therein lies the answer to our question. What's the significance of the arks? Parcher. Well, friends, when the ark left, the glory of God left too. Glory is the, the, the weightiness, the vastness, the self disclosure of who God is. And this glory, this white, left. The point couldn't be clearer, brothers and sisters, God will not allow His glory to be mocked, mistreated, abused, ignored, manipulated, or taken for granted. He will not be a rabbit's foot. You and I cannot use. God. He does not exist for us. We exist for Him. He is not at our beck and call, tending to whatever we so manipulate and desire for Him to do. We are at His. God's judgment came upon Israel that day in a most significant, certain, severe way. Because when the ark left, God left too. We saw last week in 1 Samuel 3 that sometimes God goes silent. And we see this week in 1 Samuel 4 that at times God may withdraw. His merciful presence. Years and years and years after the events recorded in 1 Samuel 4, Psalm chapter 78 was written. And a portion of Psalm 78 references this very day and confirms that this is the right understanding of the story. Let me read just two verses from that chapter. It says in Psalm 78, verse 60, he, this is God, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelled among mankind. And verse 61 is one of the most shocking verses in the entire Bible. He delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. Oh, my gosh. The the ark was the symbol of God's special presence among his people. It pointed to his mercy, his word, his forgiveness. And among all the places and peoples among the world, God's glory uniquely resided there at the temple in the ark, And God let that get taken. One commentator put it this way, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to be carrying on a false relationship with Him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with Him if it will awaken you to the sort of God He really is. That seems to be exactly What First Samuel Chapter four says. That's the story. Aren't you glad you came? Perhaps you're familiar with the way the the ark. And the temple and the glory of God, though, function in the rest of the Old Testament. If not, would you allow me a few more minutes? Later in 1 Samuel, I'm very pleased to tell you, we'll see that the ark returned. The people repented. God came back. There was a reprieve from hardship. Hardship. But it gets even better. In the next book, in 2 Samuel chapter six, King David has the joyous, in fact, dancing day in which the ark is brought into Jerusalem itself. Where now, God was dwelling at the center of the life of the people of Israel. But it got even better than that. Later, his son, Solomon, was given by God the wonderful opportunity of building the temple. And in that temple, when it was dedicated, the the glory of God came and dwelled. This is, if you're looking for the high point in the entire Old Testament, this is it. God's people in God's place, under God's blessing, with God himself dwelling. In the temple. And yet, the story doesn't stay at that peak. Because the people continued to sin year after year, decade after decade. They persistently broke covenant. And so eventually, God left for good. Jeremiah chapter 12 speaks of this time when the glory of God departed as the Babylonians destroyed the temple. It says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. Israel didn't learn from 1 Samuel 4. Brothers and sisters, if God's indwelling presence in us is dependent upon our cessation of sin, we are most to be pitied. None of us would ever know the presence of God. The comfort of God, the grace of God, the power of God. The only thing we would know is the judgment of God, just like the Israelites as that glory left the temple. The Old Testament from Genesis 3 in the garden to 1 Samuel 4 to Jeremiah 12 to the end of Malachi. The Old Testament declares that the absence of the glory of God is due to the persistent rebellion of people just like you and me. No different. And so the Old Testament closes with the silence and the absence of God. And the heavens are shut up for 400 years. Generations of people born and dead without a prophet. But the Old Testament doesn't get the last word. There is a new one, a better one. You see, Jesus, in the book of John tells us, God himself incarnated. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled, Hopefully, the light bulb's going on. Tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, the merciful, mediating presence of God returned again. But this time, not in a building and not in a box in a person, in flesh. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Can I get a hallelujah? Thank you. And after living a perfect life of obedience before the Father... And the watching world, this Jesus hung on a cross, and don't miss it, the presence of the Father looked away as Jesus felt the full weight of the judgment for sin that we deserve. Today, my dear friends, the cross of Christ, not the ark, is where we come to see and know God's mediating presence. And not temporarily, but forever. It's at this wonderful cross where the wrath of God is satisfied and the mercy of God is once for all mediated to the people of God. You see, here's the big difference. Today, God's continued merciful presence with us Is not based on our obedience, but on Jesus's. Every single one of us would rightly be named Ichabod if not for this Son of God. And His glory and His presence is actually not without alone, but within. Not in a building not in a box. But you see, when Jesus resurrected and later ascended, before he left, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go, I will send a helper, one of the same kind, like Jesus, who will be with us to the end of the age. God dwells not symbolically in some gold box, But Christian, God now dwells within you, within us. As New Testament Christians, we may at times, yes, for a variety of reasons, struggle with the feeling of God's absence. Yet God is not gone. Ever. He has placed the Spirit within you as a down payment, as a guarantee of what is to come. A genuine Christian never breathes one breath and never experiences one heartbeat alone, for God himself dwells within. And the glory of God fills his people that together we might invite more and more and more